I am very thankful for our volunteers. As I was uh, in worship this morning, I was thinking uh, this weekend, today is August 17th, and two years ago this weekend is when we launched this Carmel campus. So we're celebrating our two-year anniversary this weekend. Yeah, that's great. And, and so during the, the music set, during the worship set, I was, I was looking around the room. I was worshiping, okay, but I was also looking around the room, and I was seeing some of the people that are here um, that helped us launch this campus and that were on our very first ministry teams and thinking just how thankful I am uh, for the people there. And then I was looking and I was seeing some of you who are, are new uh, since we launched this campus and just how gracious that God has been at bringing uh, friends and neighbors and new people here. And I was just a little bit overcome actually by um, just the way that God is blessing us. And so thank you. If you, if you serve, uh, what you do does matter. And if you don't, we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. Um, we're continuing in the series called Making Room for Life. And we've been talking about how busy we are. Now, last week we said as a society that we uh, kind of view it as a badge of honor to be busy, don't we? Like that's something that we brag about almost and uh, that we seem to keep getting busier and busier. We said that like moms of two-year-olds are busy and then the moms of high schoolers will come and say, wait, just wait. And it gets a lot worse. And we said, when does it ever end? Like when do we ever get less busy? Well, I have some encouragement maybe for you today. I came across this article in Time magazine that has some good news for us in this area. It makes some predictions about our future. It was called the future of leisure time. And here are a few of these predictions. It says, the kitchens of the future will be highly automated. And so this prediction is that you need only make out your menu and put the ingredients in their proper storage spaces. And automated arms will, at the right time, retrieve, prepare, cook, and serve the food to perfection. Does that sound good? We could go for that, right? Similarly, household robots will handle most of the menial chores. For instance, your garbage will be automatically removed from the trash receptacle and carried via underground conveyor right out to the curb on trash day. That sounds pretty good. That uh, uh, vacuum cleaners, lawnmowers, and window washers will all be automated and unmanned. Uh, most factory workers, maybe this doesn't sound good to you, I don't know, but this is, there's good news to follow. Most factory workers, administrators, and even middle managers in the workplace will be replaced by computers and machines. Only high-level executives will remain, and they will be occupied making long-range strategic decisions. But that's okay, because one prediction was that eventually only 10% of the population of the United States would be working at any one time, but the rest of the people would be paid not to work. Maybe you believe we're already on our way there. Um, But that's okay because this article opined that the computers and machines will be producing so much output that pretty much everyone in the U.S. will be independently wealthy. And the average income in this country will be the equivalent in today's dollars of $100,000 to $120,000 a year, even for those people who don't work. And it said that most people would spend the first 25 years of their life getting an education, will need to be educated longer, that they'll spend 25 years working, and then the rest of their lives would be spent enjoying the fruits of their labor. I don't know about you, but I think that sounds pretty good, don't you? Unfortunately, the bad news is this article was published in 1966, <laughs> and most of those predictions were supposed to come to pass by the year 2000. In the year 2000. You guys know that Conan O'Brien bit? In the year 2000. How can it be that we are in the most technologically advanced society that's ever existed? We've got more tools and gadgets at our disposal to improve productivity, and yet we're all still really, really busy. Well, last week, you may remember, we talked about our tendency to respond to the tyranny of the urgent. We said that the urgent things are things that need to be done now, 
And the important things are the things that need to be done most. And if you were here, you may remember this illustration that we talked about, like these grains of rice down here. This is jar represents all of our time that we have. And the grains of rice in the bottom represented the urgent things. And what we tend to do is jump on whatever's urgent. So we go about our lives throughout the week and we do whatever's urgent. And what we do is we don't leave time for the important things represented by these orange golf balls to put the important things in the jar. And we said that the key to making our life less busy is to put the important things in first, right? And then the urgent things can kind of fall in around it. And then if the urgent things that aren't really important don't get done, it's okay because they're not really that important anyway. And then we talked about this one big important thing that is our relationship with God and how Jesus said, this is the most important thing. Your relationship with God is the most important thing uh, that you can do. And so we've talked about how if you put this in the jar first, that everything else kind of fits into its proper place. You may remember I said, if you're a Christian, your relationship with God is the most important relationship you have. And if you're not a, if you're not a Christian, it's the most important relationship that you're missing. And so in this series called Making Room for Life, we're talking about how your life could be different if you decided to put your relationship with God in the jar first. Like how could our busyness be affected when we get this right and do the important things first and the most important thing uh, absolutely first. And, And so what we're doing is we're looking at the life of Jesus and seeing how even as a very busy man, he made this a priority. And so if you have your Bibles, turn them to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, That's where we're going to start. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you that looks like this. Uh, You can take that, pick that up and turn it to Matthew 22. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. You can take that home with you. We want you to be reading along with us. But I want to set the scene for you a little bit. Jesus has just finished schooling some guys. All right, there's a group of people called the Sadducees. They were a sect of uh, part of the Jewish culture. And the Sadducees basically believe that when you die, it's all over. Like there's nothing that happens after death. When your time here on earth is finished, you're done. And Jesus didn't believe that. In fact, he taught passionately about what happens after you die, but it wasn't enough for Jesus to just teach what happens after you die. Jesus went on later to go show what happens after you die when he would die on a cross and then show in literal form that there is life after death. Jesus, we like to say Jesus lived then died so that we could die then live. That he died then three days later he lived again to show us that you can literally have life after death. But in this case, in Matthew 22, he's just arguing with the Sadducees about this. And he shuts them down. What we see is that he gives Jesus, uh, Jesus gives an answer that's so brilliant that it just shuts them down. And they're like a football team pushed back on their heels, like they're forced to retreat and huddle up. And you can almost see in Matthew 22, right before this passage we're going to read, how they're trying to come up with a way to trick Jesus. And so they come up with this idea. And their idea is they send one man, part of their group, who is a teacher of the law, to go ask Jesus a new question. And that's where we're going to pick up in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. if you have your Bible open there. It says this, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. Now, Jesus didn't make this up, all right? Uh, this isn't the first time they would have heard it. We can read it even today in Deuteronomy 6, 5. Jesus says, the most important thing you can do is to have a relationship with God, right? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And so uh, he's not being very controversial here with these people. All right, he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. But then he adds one other thing. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets 
are based on or hang on these two commandments. Jesus seems to be saying that this element of loving your neighbor, of being connected with other people, of doing life with your friends and the people you go to school with and the people you work with and the people you live on the same street with and the people you go to church with, like that is as important, it is like your relationship with God, right? So Jesus says there are two things and he's saying uh, not that your relationship with people is a good substitute for your relationship with God. Okay, but your relationship with God isn't a good excuse to stay out of a relationship with people. He said it is like it, right? So it's as important or nearly as important. He's saying you need to do both. You need to have a relationship with God, love God, and you need to love people. If we want to follow the example of Jesus, the most important things, the two things we should put in the jar first are to love God and love other people. He says it all boils down to this. The law and the prophets are based on, hang on these two things. He says, he might say today, the Christian life is based on these two things, love God and love others. That's really good because I feel like here in Indiana, um, you know, we are in a Christian culture, right? We've got a kind of a a uh, Christian-based culture, but I feel like we've got a lot of uh, people who would say they're Christians but aren't really living as Christians, right? We've got a bunch of Olive Garden Christians. That's what I call them. Uh, You know, we're Christians in the same way that Olive Garden is Italian, right? (laughs) Not really, right? You understand? We've got a, a bunch of people who are cultural Christians. They say they're Christians, but they don't really live that out. You know, you know what I mean? We've got a whole bunch of cultural Christians. Like, I'm Christian because my mom was a Christian. Uh, I'm Christian because I grew up in the church. Or I've, but you've never really made that relationship with God the number one thing. And the, your relationship with people, with other people, doesn't really matter in your life. But Jesus says, hey, if you want to get this right, here are the most important things that you can do. And it's to love God and love other people. And since we talked about your relationship with God, I don't remember which one's which. It doesn't really matter. One is like the other, right? Uh, since we talked about your relationship with God last week, and we're going to spend the rest of today talking about what it means to really love people, what it means to be connected with people, especially other believers and other people who are finding their way back to God. And, and, and we can do that even right here in a place like church. You know, we come to church and we kind of sit in our seats and we do our thing and we make it part of our routine and we don't always think about what it means to be in community with the people right around us. And so what I wanted to do today was something that's going to make a lot of you very, very uncomfortable. <clears throat> I already hear throats clearing in the room. And so here's what I want to do because we're going to talk about community. I want you to be in community even this morning while we talk about it. And so I'm going to ask if you're able to stand up right now And I want to move everybody, I think you'll fit, into this center section right here. I can feel the nerves in the room already, okay? It's like, oh, it's this kind of, some of you are here for the very first time, and you're like, oh, it's this kind of church? Yeah, today, we're going to be this kind of church, okay? So let's just all move together. Let's feel what it means to be in community. I want to tell you, as you're moving, that I understand how uncomfortable this is for some of you. And I know how uncomfortable this is for some of you because I know many of us sit in the same seat every week. Here's how I know this. Cameron and I will often have this discussion on Monday. Hey, did you talk to so-and-so this weekend? And he'll say, well, I don't know that I know them. Who are they? And so I'll say, "Um, okay, I'll describe them. He'll go, where do they sit? (laughs) And so if I say uh, third row from the back on the left side, he'll say, now, this is not a real person, all right? But he'll say something like, Oh, does she have curly red hair and she, he always looks like he doesn't want to be here? Yeah, that's them. Oh, okay, yeah, I know who they are, right? So we, we know you by where you sit. And so I know this is a little uncomfortable, so thanks for doing that. But here's what, here's what I want to talk about. We live in the most connected time in human history. I mean, how many of you are old like me 
And you remember when you had to be next to the wall to call somebody on the phone because the cord only reached six feet, right? And, and you couldn't even imagine what it would be like. It was your dream to be able to walk into the garage to talk to your boyfriend or girlfriend on the phone, right? Like if I could just get all the way to the garage and say so you're like this and the, the cord's as long as it'll go, but your parents can still hear you talking, right? Now, could you imagine not only to be able to walk into the garage, but to get in your car and drive away and still be talking to somebody on the phone? How cool is that? I mean, I could literally call one of you up right now, walk out to my car, drive away, and talk to you all the way to Florida. I don't have that much to say, but I mean, we could do that. We're technologically capable. I can't even say that word. Technologically capable of doing that. And it's not just a phone. It's a video phone. I mean, if you have FaceTime or Skype, I can look at you while I'm talking to you anywhere in the world. I mean, it's amazing. It's like something out of Star Trek, right? I mean, that's what they did in Star Trek. They pop it open and look, and you can see the person on the phone. I mean, we are in such an amazing technological time. Friends, sit across the table from one another or on the couch next to one another and text each other, right? Is that crazy? I mean, have you ever emailed the person in the next office or, or you text instead of walking upstairs? Anybody ever text their kids, hey, dinner's ready, come on down, you know? We do that, right? For many of us, it's normal to talk to four to six people in a day, but we have 500 Facebook friends. Right? We don't talk to them at all. How many of you, okay, I'm going to fess up. How many of you have ever introduced yourself in person to somebody who was already your Facebook friend? Anybody? Yeah, okay, yeah. I see the hands going up. Everybody's a little ashamed, right? I've done that. I've done it. We live in a time where it's easy to mistake digital community for real community. I mean, social media has made it easy for us to create a persona, but almost impossible for you to be really known. You know, I heard a stunning statistic this week. If you're a parent, this should really disturb you. The average teenage boy, by the time he reaches 18, will be watching, on average, 50 pornographic clips per week. We have traded real relationships that matter for digital ones that are easy. I mean, think the great thing about electronics and social media is that you can manage your friendships, right? I mean, you can make them neat and clean. We can control our friendships. Uh, People are messy, Right? But we can make our relationships anything we want. But the messy people are the ones we're called to love. That's who Jesus says. He says, love your neighbors. The, the messy people who are our friends and neighbors, the people we work with and go to church with and sit next to and we live on the same street with and go to school with, those are the people we're called to love. We, we see a picture of what this is work, look, looks like when it's working really well in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, we always point to Acts 2.42 as one way the church should work. But if you look a couple of verses later in Acts 2.46, it says this about the very first church. It says, they worshiped together at the temple each day, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And so there's this idea that this model that we have for the first church in the New Testament, it says that they worshiped together in the temple. And then they met in homes. So even back at the very first church, they had this idea that there was a large group gathering and there was a small group gathering. And and the large group gathering, much like it is today, is where we celebrate. It's where we worship God, right? It's mostly, but not entirely, about focused on celebrating and worshiping God. And then the small group environment is mostly, but not entirely, where we do the relationship with each other. That's where the gathering was all about community. And so uh, we've got these two things, you know, and so the, the large group environment was about coming together and being together in one place. And the small group environment was about like eating nachos in somebody's house and getting to know each other and being all up in each other's mess because we're all a little bit messy. 
Now, you may think they weren't messy in the first church, but if that's true, you just need to read the next couple chapters in Acts, and you're going to see some really, really messy people even in the first church. And that's true about this church, too. If we didn't have messy people, I wouldn't want to be here because messy people are real people, and that's who we're called to love, and that's who's called to be in the church. And so the model that we've adopted at Genesis Church is much like that. We talk about the three C's. I talked about them in the video. The three C's are celebrate, connect, and contribute. And what we see is that the first C, celebrate, happens largely, not exclusively, okay, but largely in this gathering, in the large group gathering on Sunday. And that the second C, connect, happens largely, not exclusively, but happens largely in the small group or the connection group. We call them connection group environments in people's homes or in the coffee shop or in the living room uh, across the hall from here. That's why we're so adamant that connection groups are one of the best ways that we can help people find their way back to God. Now, here's why the small group gatherings are so important for us. Okay, once a church reaches a certain size, say 30 or 40 people, you look around. We've got more than that right here in the center section. Uh, If you get above 30 or 40 people, it's impossible to really know everybody. I mean, can you think of any group of 30 or 40 that you really know everything that's going on in their lives? I mean, not even your family, right? Your extended family. Uh, You don't know everything that's going on in your brothers or sisters or cousins' lives. And so we get a certain size. It's critical that we have the smaller communities where we can grow together and learn together and hold one another accountable. So why do we do connection groups the way that we do? Well, let me talk to you about how we do them first. We, about a year ago, adopted a new method for doing connection groups where we do connection groups in semesters. So we'll have, uh, in just a few weeks, we'll have several groups that start meeting. Um, Many of them will be based on the sermon series that we're going through. September 21st, we're starting a series on the book of Ephesians, uh, and we're going to have several new groups that pop up around that, and you can join one of those. We'll also have some specialty groups, men's groups, women's groups, uh, Financial Peace University, which is a financial planning group, uh, and things like that. They're in semester so that you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, you sign up for a group, and uh, in nine weeks, ten weeks, it's over, And you can go do something else. You're not stuck there until Jesus comes back. That's not what we want. And so here's why we do it that way. Because I want to be honest about groups for a minute and talk about some of the pitfalls with the way that most churches do groups, including the way we do it. First of all, if you decide to join a connection group, there's a good likelihood you'll have at least one person in that group that drives you a little bit crazy. All right? Every connection group has one person that drives everybody else in the group crazy. If you think about your group, if you're in a group and you don't have that one person that drives people crazy, it's probably you, right? (laughs) I mean, the way we like to say it here at Genesis is there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people that you like, and there are people that other people like, right? And so there's a good chance if you get in a group with 8, 10, 12, 15 people, there's going to be at least one person in that group that other people like, right? And so uh, we got to be, well, if you're only there for nine or 10 weeks, you can deal with that, right? You know there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And so you can see that. Now that shouldn't stop you from loving them, right? That shouldn't stop you from encouraging uh, the other people in your group to love them. It shouldn't stop them from enjoying the company of the people that you do like in that group. I was thinking about, back about my family's experience in connection groups here at Genesis Church, and we've been part of a group for 11 years, different groups, and we have had uh, more than 60 people in and out of our groups uh, over that time period, all kinds of different people. We only have about 12 or 13 now, uh, but we've had over 60 people, and some of our family's best uh, lifelong friendships have started in connection groups. And so for us, we know that the benefits of meeting those people who are going to be our lifelong friends just far outweigh... Uh, the, the psychological strain <laughs> and the drain from the life suckers that you might get in a group with, all right? 
Uh, second, the other reason, another reason we do uh, short-term groups, it, it's possible that you will find yourself in a spiritual mismatch. You might join a group, uh, and the first one you've ever been to, you've taken a step of faith, and you're not very schooled in the Bible. And so you take a step of faith, and you join a group, and week one, they want to talk about all about the eschatological implications of the elect and what the imagery and revelation has to say about that. And you're like, well, I just wanted to eat some nachos, right? And so it's possible you'll get in a spiritual mismatch. Or maybe it's the other way. Like, you want to talk about the deeper issues of our faith, and they all want to talk about the theology of the bachelorette. And you're like, no, this is not what I signed up for, right? Well, we thought of that too. And so that's why we have a lot of short-term groups available. Uh, When we start those in September, many of them will run for nine weeks. And you can do anything for nine weeks. College should have taught you that, right? You get a nine-week course. You're like, this class is going to kill me, but it's not nine weeks. I can do nine weeks. Well, so finally, you might look for a group and maybe there's none at a convenient time or a convenient location for you. If that's true, I really want to challenge you on that. I mean, we'll have groups starting several nights of the week. I know we'll have a Monday, Wednesday, Friday night groups. I know we've got Sunday during the day, Sunday night. Um, We're going to have a Tuesday, I think, a.m. group. We'll have a Tuesday noon men's group. Uh, We'll have groups in Zionsville, Westfield, Noblesville, Carmel, even at this campus right here. And so if you can't find one that works for your schedule, that fits, uh, that's convenient for you to get to, well, you probably need to free up your schedule. Uh, You need to take time to do this. Jesus said it's one of the two most important things you can do are love God and love other people. So what does it take to really love people well? I mean, whether you're in a connection group here at Genesis or a ministry team where you serve, that you've got people around you, or even in your neighborhood or your school or your workplace, what do you have to do to love people well? I I think there are three things, and I've put these in your notes, and so if you want to follow along, uh, you can do that. Number one is this. You have to be willing. You know, time and time again in Scripture, we see God do amazing things with ordinary people who are just willing and available. I mean, no special talent required. They're just there. Um, so how many of you in the room are married? Good, oh, a big portion of you. How many of you married people have ever tried to set up one of your single friends on a date? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. How many of you in the room are single? Yeah, how many of you ever been set up by your married friends? Yep, how many of you wish they would just leave you alone? <laughs> right? Yeah, why is it that once we get married, we want to set everybody, we try to get everybody else married off too? Why is that? Is it misery loves company? You know, I hope not. I said that in the first service and my wife was sitting right there and she said, and I was like, oh, no, that's not what I meant. I hope it's because we want our friends to experience the same joy that we've found when we find that person that's perfect for us, right? I hope that's why. And in the same way, I hope we'd be willing to desire people to come into a relationship with Christ because he's so marked our lives. And so I've already talked about what it means for your groups in our church. So let's talk a little bit about what it takes to connect in your neighborhood or your dorm or your apartment or wherever it is that you live, wherever it is that you work. You know what I think has been uh, the, mo- the biggest obstacle to relationships over the past 40 years is this. You know what this is? It's our garage door opener. I mean, think about this. You can uh, drive home after work now and you can hit this button as you go down the street and drive your car into your garage. In fact, any of you ever um, try to hit the button at exactly the right time so that the door just gets over your car right as you're driving in? You try to Indiana Jones that sucker right into your garage, right? You do that? Yeah, anybody? Go ahead, raise your hand. You can. Okay, thank you. I'm not alone. Yes, some of us are uh, OCD about that kind of stuff. And like, I want the, man, if it was perfect, like it would scrape the top of my antenna as my car was driving in, right, as the door was going up. But you can drive your car into your garage, turn the car off, hit the button, 
and you are safe inside your cocoon. You never have to talk to another soul. Do turn your car off first before you hit the garage door button, by the way. I mean, is that how we were supposed to live life? This is, you know what? Because our houses now all have two or three car attached garages, right? All the houses they build these days. You know what houses had 40, 50, 60 years ago instead of garages? They had big front porches, right? Places where neighbors would gather. You could sit outside in the evening and you could have your neighbors over and you could drink lemonade. Maybe that's just my like, idyllic version of what happened, but that's, that's what I always envisioned. It's like you have a big porch and people just walk by and, and they stop on your porch and start talking about things. I mean, those people who crave true community these days have to really be willing to make it happen. When we moved into the neighborhood we're in about three years ago, the day we moved in, it was a Saturday, and that night our neighbors had drug a great big barbecue grill down to the uh, sidewalk uh, in, their, in their front yard, in their driveway, and one of the neighbors came up to us and said, hey, yeah, they do that about twice a month, and anytime the grill's out in the driveway, you just bring down a side dish, and they're going to have meat for everybody, and we just all sit and meet together. And I thought, man, what a great picture of community. Somebody had to try to make that happen. I've got a friend that uh, has a fire pit, had a fire pit in his backyard, and he noticed that whenever he lit it, a few of the neighbors would come around and sit with him. And so he decided, you know, how many more neighbors would I get if I put it in the front yard? And so he took one of those portable fire pits and he put it in his driveway. And now occasionally he'll sit out on his driveway, which seems kind of weird, right, to light a fire in your driveway. Don't do this if you don't have a fire pit, okay, by the way. But he'll sit down on his driveway with his fire pit, and people will come over and sit with him. And you, like they're forming community ar- around the driveway. People will come and gather there. Now, chances are you've thought about maybe inviting somebody to church for, for lunch or for dinner, but you've never taken the chance to do that. You have to be willing, right? You have to be willing to do that. They're not going to invite themselves. Well, there are a couple people here that would probably invite themselves over to your house for dinner, but most of us aren't going to invite ourselves. You have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to make the first move. So, To love others well, you have to be willing. Number two is this. You have to be interruptible. You have to be interruptible. We see this time and time again in the life of Jesus. He's he's walking on his way to go heal a dying girl, and this woman comes up. She's been bleeding for 12 years, and she grabs at Jesus' coat. And just by touching the hem of his garment, she's healed. But Jesus stops and turns around, and in the midst of this journey to go heal some person, he, he engages her in a conversation. He makes time for her. Another time he's teaching and he's in this house and and there's people crowded into this house that want to hear him teach. And so he's busy. He's in the middle of this. And these guys um, have their friend who is sick, who's paralyzed, and he wants to get to Jesus. He knows if I can just get to Jesus, I'll be healed. And so their friends get to the house and they can't get him in. And so they climb up on top of the house and they start tearing open the roof and lower their friend down in front of Jesus. Now, if I'm standing here on stage and brother starts coming through the roof, uh, I'm going to be distracted, okay? I'm probably not going to be very happy about somebody coming through the roof. But Jesus didn't do that. What he said was, hey, come on down. You know, I'm going to stop. And I, he stopped in the middle of his teaching and he healed the guy. And then he commended their, his friends for their faith because he was always interruptible. A little later in his ministry, Jesus is in demand and his disciples are trying to manage his time a little better. They know that his time is running out. And these parents are letting their kids run wild. And they're coming up and they're all wanting to be around Jesus and touch Jesus. And the disciples are rebuking these kids saying, hey, you little brats, go away. And Jesus said, no, 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 let the kids, let the kids come to me. He, he's very interruptible. He, he realized that loving your neighbor as yourself means you have to take time to help them with their problems. You, you have to listen to their issues. You, you have to make their concerns your concerns. And so many times you don't want to join a group or love others or be in a relationship because it takes away from our time. But Jesus showed so many times that one of the most precious gifts you can give to somebody is your time. 
and your attention. I mean, we have every time-saving device you can think of today, but we have so little time for people. We make so little time for real relationships. My wife, um, a lot of people ask her why she's not on Facebook, why she's not on Twitter, and she always says this, and it's, so, it's really so wise. She says, I don't have time to maintain the relationships I have. Why am I going to go start new ones? Be willing. Be interruptible. And finally, number three, is be intentional. You need to be in community. You weren't meant to do life alone. And and I'm talking about Christ-centered community. You may think, I already have a community. I've got my golf league or my bowling league or the, the exercise group I'm a part of or the sports league I'm a part of or my bunco night or whatever. But if your conversations, at the end of the day, if your conversations don't revolve around Jesus, if they don't improve your relationship with Christ, it may be fun, but it won't be fruitful. Now, here's the good news. You get to decide who your community is. I mean, this is true for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you decide to join a group or not, you can choose to be in a community that builds you up or you can choose to be in a community that tears you down. And many of us have toxic friends. We have friends that are no good for us. We have friends that, um, do you remember when you were a kid, the Poison Control Center had those Mr. Yuck stickers that you put on poisonous stuff, you've got some friends that you need to mentally put a Mr. Yuck sticker on their forehead because they are not good for you. And you're around them. I'm going to, no, I'm going to have a better analogy because I'm not talking about the ones that you don't want to be around anyway, okay? The, The poisonous ones that everybody knows are poisonous and you just kind of avoid anyway. I'm talking about friends who love you and are good to you, but aren't necessarily good for you. You have Twinkie friends. They're friends you like, but they're no good for you. You got to get them out of your life. You got to, not that they can't come to church, not that they can't be a part of your life, but you cannot let them decide and to be the center of your community. And so here's the challenge for you today. I have two challenges, actually. Number one is this. In a couple weeks, uh, we're going to start talking about joining groups here at Genesis Church. I would challenge you, if you're not already in a group, to get in a group. Now, I don't want you to get in a group just to get in a group. Now, we don't uh, even, I don't even know how many people are in groups at Genesis right now, but it's all about helping you facilitate spiritual conversations, you know, those kind of conversations that grow you in your relationship with people and with God. That's why we believe in groups. They are the biblical model. I already showed you from Acts 2. They're the biblical model for spiritual growth. And, and if you're already in a group, if your group isn't spending at least half of its time talking about Jesus, you're wasting your time. You need to find another group. We, we've already said you can't make more time. And so you've got to take the time you can to do what's important. So here's the second challenge. If you're already in a group, the second challenge is this. I'd love for you to be investing in other people or other couples individually. Whether you're in a group or not, this is something you can do. So if you're already in a connection group, pick one or two people, uh, one or two couples that you'd love to invest in on a deeper level. Invite them to dinner, go on a double date, you know, make an effort to get to know them better. Or you can do it here in church. If you're not in a group, I have now put you next to somebody that you probably didn't know uh, before this morning. Even before you leave here, you can, don't just sit there. Don't just, uh, you know, say, bye, good sitting, bye. You know, you ask them a question. Like, how did you get to here, Genesis? How did you get to Genesis Church? Who brought you here? How long have you been here? What, you know, and, and then go to lunch together. Go, go have dinner together tonight. Do something. Now, the other thing is this. We think about building community and investing in new friendships, and we tend to get a little overwhelmed by the time it could take. But this doesn't have to be about something new. There are so many things that you already do anyway. Why don't you do it with somebody that you want to get to know? Uh, one great example is this. Uh, if you're like me, 
and eat three meals a day, in seven days, you're going to eat 21 meals. What if you took two of those and decided, I'm going to eat two meals with somebody I want to get to know a little better? You know, if you already do a sport, if you already run, if you already play golf, why don't you invite somebody that you're wanting to get to know better to come and do it with you? If you have a hobby, invite somebody to come along with you. You don't have to be, add one other thing to your schedule. You know, Jesus said, we used this verse last week in John 10.10, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Jesus wants us to have a full life. And when he's talking about a full life, he's not talking about a life that's full of activity. He's talking about a rich life, an abundant life, a satisfying life. With, and, and when no less than Jesus tells us the two most important things that we can do are love God and love other people, well, if we're going to make room for life, then these are the things that have to be putting it in the jar first. Love God. And the second is like it, to love others. You know, I told you guys a couple weeks ago about my friend Jonathan Brumley, uh, who passed away a couple weeks ago um, at the tender age of 26. Jonathan was a, just a, a, a beautiful soul, and his family is uh, part of our church. They're here today. And um, we got the opportunity last weekend to have this, his celebration of life right here at Genesis Church. It was unlike anything you've ever seen. And I got to be a part of that. And I, I got here about an hour 15 minutes or so, hour and 15 minutes before it started. And it was amazing to me to see the effect that their connection group has had on their life. The Brumleys were here or weren't here yet, but there were already people in their group that had been all week bringing the meals and praying for them. And then when I got here, they were cleaning the place up and getting things set up and preparing the food and getting things, uh, getting the food all ready. And, um, and then I started meeting people that were coming in to wish the Brumleys best, their best. And, and I, I said, Where, how do you know them? And so many of them were like, well, we were in a small group with them at another church. You know? And so I could just see the way that these people were investing in the lives of the people around them. And I think we all need this kind of community. Like, like you want this kind of community. You, you desire to be in that kind of community. The Brumleys would tell you, you need that kind of community. And not just for when the bad things happen, although that sure makes a difference, but to live your life that way. You weren't meant to do life alone. And Jesus says an abundant life means that you live in community with others, that you love God and you love other people. And so as we go into a time of prayer and then uh, one last worship song, I just want us to think about that and think about the advantages of community, but not just how we do community, but why we do community. We do community because it was an example for us, given to us by Jesus, the one who loved us so much that he came down and gave his life for us. And in response to that, what can we do? Except do what he says and love other people. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus. I, I thank you for the example he set and the way that he was always willing and always interruptible. And he was always intentional about investing in other people. God, that that the, the life of Jesus was an example for us and that the death of Jesus was payment for us. And I thank you that you sent him to earth and that you've given him to us as a way for just to model our lives after and how we can be in a community, but also how we can have that free gift of life after death just by following him. God, I thank you for Jesus. We want our lives to be surrounding him. We want him to be all about Jesus and we want our church to be all about Jesus and the great things that he's done for us. So we thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name.